The second reading today is the book of Philemon. So we'll read the whole book together. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints, and I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it, to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Thanks, Robin. Well, it's, uh, it's Mother's Day today. And so let me uh, give a big heartfelt thank you right from the front um, for the women in our church who provide counsel, faithful examples of what it's like to be a godly woman and for being a mother, maybe a grandmother or a sister if you'd prefer, for us within our church family. We are thankful to God for you and that you're part of our family. Well, as Hugh mentioned, the title of our sermon today is Family Forgiveness. So I just want to ask this question right up front. When you hear those words, family and forgiveness, are they words that you would naturally put together? In light of our passage, and because it's Mother's Day, I explored stories involving conflict with mothers. We all have a mother. Some of us have good relationships with our mums, Personally, I'm thankful that I have a great relationship with mine. But some of us do not have, uh, or have good relationships or immediately associate mothers or being a mother or families generally uh, with, a happy, with happy thoughts or, or happy memories. In fact, I spent some time reading blogs this week um, of people who have taken to the internet to voice their disappointment with their mothers. Their unrequited love, sometimes, their, their rejection, often, their loss and pain. One sad story was shared by a woman named Danielle, whose mother had died. A woman she had refused to forgive before her death, and who she struggled to forgive even after. She hoped, in some way, 
that venting her story might bring solace. After describing many hurtful ways the daughter had felt she'd been treated by her mother over the course of her life, some of the closing paragraphs of her blog said this. It's hard to forgive you. I shouldn't be mad at you because you're dead, because it's over. I know that it's healthy for me to find forgiveness, and rage and grudges are probably not the shortest path to feeling grateful, but I'm still mad. I'm mad that you never wanted to know me. I'm mad that you never asked, not a single question in 43 years, how I felt or what I thought. You never wanted to see the world from my point of view. I know it's hard to forgive people who are dead, but the truth is I, I said it all. I spent the last decade of my life trying to explain my feelings to you. Sometimes it was more flamethrower than Olive Branch, but sometimes I was pretty grown up about it. It never worked. You got angry, you got defensive, you got help, hurtful, you got passive-aggressive. I was going to you for the one thing a daughter needs from her mother and can't really get anywhere else. Unconditional understanding, acceptance, love. And I was turned away. So, I forgive you. Of course, I don't actually forgive you. But I'm saying it. Like how people say that if you smile when you're miserable, it will make you happier. I forgive you. I love you. You gave me life. I'm so sorry. I could have been a lot more compassionate about many things. We never made peace in life, you and I. We came pretty close to approximating it, but we were always hurt, or angry, or both. If there is one dream I have for us, it's that I can give you in death what I couldn't give you in life. Understanding, forgiveness, true, unqualified love. So I forgive you. I forgive you. I forgive you. It's still not working, but I'll keep trying. I promise. When you read the whole thing, that's just how she ends, it's a devastating story. The deep sense of hopelessness and grief. Internal fight to justify and hold on to hurts, but knowing that they continue to cause pain. Not knowing what to do with them at the end of the day. We have all felt the effects of conflict at some time in our lives having either longed for the offering of forgiveness from someone or having wrestled with the need to offer forgiveness to someone else. And look, probably both. So can broken relationships like this, like Danielle's and her mum, especially badly broken relationships, can they ever be restored? Well, as Christians, I hope the answer is a heartfelt yes. As followers of Christ, we recognize that forgiveness, as we've sung about this morning, is at the very heart of Christianity. We acknowledge our need for forgiveness from our loving Heavenly Father. And we say with the psalmist in Psalm 51, Wash me clean of my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. And my sin is always before me. Against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. We recognize that forgiveness is given through the death of God's own Son, Jesus Christ. We are received by turning in faith away from lives lived for ourselves, to live for God and His glory in the strength of the Holy Spirit. But while we recognize that our own forgiveness has been given at great cost to God, our lives continue to be in work in progress, don't they? We're not perfect. <laughs> Surprise. And while we await Christ's return and the final removal of sin from the world, we continue to struggle with the effects of that sin in our own lives and in the lives of others. When we are hurt, 
when our trust is betrayed, we can lose sight of what draws us together in Christ. And we can find it hard to forgive. And often harder to still, uh, harder still to be fully reconciled to each other, even when forgiveness is offered. So, that question, can badly broken relationships be restored, perhaps even within the church, is still a live question for us. And as we conclude our series in Philemon today, considering the church as family, well, this is exactly where we are taken. So let me pray as we jump in. Gracious God, we are so thankful for your forgiveness. We are so thankful that you sent your son to die for us in our place. As we've sung, we are glad that you have done that for us. It brings us great joy to know that. But Lord, we acknowledge that that forgiveness, that perfect forgiveness that you show us is so very hard for us. And so God, as we consider forgiveness this morning from your word, would you challenge us? Would you draw us closer to you? Would you empower us through your Holy Spirit as you open our eyes and our hearts to your word? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in case you haven't heard the uh, first two of uh, this three-part series, a bit of important background just to set the scene. Over the last two weeks, we've considered the life and circumstances of Philemon, the generous member of a house church in Colossae that gathered in his home. He appears to have been renowned for his love that he shared with the Christian community, refreshing the hearts of the saints as he practically shared his faith with them. So much so that his dear friend Paul heard about him from prison. Likely, it seems, in house arrest in Rome. And we can see that in Acts 28. Where these men came to know each other is not known exactly, but their deep friendship appears to have come about as a result of Paul sharing the gospel with Philemon. And from that time on, they became beloved co-workers in the mission field of the early church, together with some of the big names that we see in the New Testament, Luke, Timothy, Mark, Epaphras. And we reflected in that first week on how the Christian faith draws us into family relationships together as a church and together with the wider Christian community. But the purpose of Paul's letter was not just to send encouragement to his brother. Uh, it was also to send exciting news that he'd come to know someone else from within Paul's household, a runaway bondservant by the name of Anesimus. Anesimus had also come to know the saving love of Christ through the gospel. And Paul was eager to reintroduce him to Philemon as Paul's very own son in the Lord. And, as a result, Philemon's brother in the family of God. As Philemon had proven to be useful to his church family through the sharing of his faith, now too could Onesimus. Paul, having sent the now born-again Onesimus back to Philemon from wherever Paul was in prison, being viewed not from the lowly status of a slave, but as an equal, a beloved fellow worker and brother, just as Philemon was to Paul. Paul's approach to Philemon was not one of force or command, but rather he appealed to Philemon from the lowly position of an old prisoner. Family love taking center stage, undermining the destructive and demeaning realities of slavery and status, demonstrating what freedom in Christ um, should look like when transactional relationships, where we care only so far as we can get something out of our relationships, were replaced with true loving relationships, where self-sacrificial love was able to be displayed. And so it's with that backdrop that the story comes to its climax, really. The point of Paul's appeal becomes known. He would now ask Philemon to receive Onesimus, his unfaithful, perhaps unhelpful, runaway servant, 
back into his household. And so, as I said, the sermon is entitled Family Forgiveness. Now, I acknowledge it may be possible that you're saying to yourself right about now, where is forgiveness even mentioned in Philemon? And, well, you're right. It's not. Expressly. And while this little letter by no means tells us everything there is to know about forgiveness and relationships, and we need the whole Bible for that, the focus and thrust of this little letter points us clearly in that direction. It is very much the words that you have seen between the lines. And just as Paul opted not to make the abolition of slavery a rule, he also does not tell Philemon what to do in the area of forgiveness with Onesimus either. But, as we work our way through these last few verses, I hope the call to forgive and the basis of that forgiveness will become clear. And so I'm going to use three headings to guide us along in our thinking. The appeal, the response, and the expectation. So first of all, the appeal. Well, as with last week... Our passage from verse 17 starts with a conjunction, a joining word, drawing Paul's letter toward its conclusion and tying that conclusion to all that has gone before. And so he writes, So, if you consider me your partner. Now you might remember, we talked about in verse 6, this same word for partnership Paul uses, um, and there it's often translated in our Bibles as, as sharing. If you consider me your partner, if we are sharing in this work. So, what is Paul drawing on? Well, two things. First of all, and then we'll look at a third. The first two are love and compassion. Love, from the outset of the letter, is pretty clear. Verse 1, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. Verse 5, because I hear of your love for all the saints. Verse 7, for I've derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother. And as we looked at last week, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. Love is very clearly where Paul's appeal is coming from. And compassion. Paul's appeal, Paul has lowered himself and humbled himself, presenting himself to Philemon as an old man and a prisoner for the gospel. Paul is practically demonstrating for Philemon what it looks like to take on the position and nature of a servant. And he appeals to his brother to do likewise. And he says, So, if you consider me to be your partner. Initially we might think, why? Why if? Because, I mean, it's pretty clear, isn't it, from what we've read, that Paul does not actually doubt the reality of of his partnership with Philemon. The love and compassion in and through the gospel that he shares with Philemon is obvious. But by framing his statement this way, Paul leaves it to Philemon to draw his own conclusions on how to apply the appeal to himself and for himself. Will he or will he not accept Paul's partnership when it comes to this appeal? And he goes on, If you consider me your partner, receive him, Onesimus, as you would receive me. Paul says, Philemon, treat this poor man before you as you would treat me. I'm in prison. I am hungry. I am poor. Philemon, treat this man, this runaway servant who has wronged you, who has separated himself from you, who is now standing before you. Treat him as you would treat me, your dear friend who is in great need of your help. I don't know about you, but it draws to mind for me the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 25, 31 to 46. And that question that the righteous ones in the Lord ask Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? You know the one? What a confronting thing for Philemon to face. 
he'd been genuinely wronged and would have been rightly upset. But he was being asked to view the situation with love and compassion. I don't know about you, but thoughts of love and compassion are not the first place my mind goes to when I've been wronged. Whether it's a big or a small thing, it is hard to humble myself when I'm hurt. I had some helpful conversations coming out of last week's sermon, thinking about slavery. You know, we might have done away with formal chattel slavery, but there are still so many ways we seek to control and hold people in positions of inferiority in society. Whether it's through wealth or status, education, position, knowledge. And often, it's not even intentional a lot of the time. It's just where our sinful human self-interest goes. Well, I think when we're in conflict, what we do with our hurt can actually be another way that we do this. When we are hurt, very often we consider the other person now owes us something, don't we? An apology, perhaps some time that they've wasted, some money, maybe we think they should have some guilt, some remorse. The offence, as it were, creates a debt. And we hold that debt. And while we're called to consider the other person with love and compassion, that debt still sits there. And we hold it over the person sometimes. I mean, whether it's by sarcasm or snark comments, whether it's by formal demands to do something, perhaps we might give them the cold shoulder because they haven't you know, done something we wanted them to, or we shut them out completely. We use the debt to control the other person, at least in our own minds, but often through our words and actions as well. And you know, I think, no doubt knowing full well the state of the human heart, through his own history, and if you know the New Testament well, you'll know how Paul came from Saul and his own approach to dealing with um, people that he didn't like. But Paul does not stop at love and compassion here. No, his appeal goes on. And in verses 18 to 19, he says, If he has wronged you at all, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. So, Paul's appealed with love, with compassion, and now he's making restitution. Restitution is a concept in the criminal law that um, basically is an order that the court can make against a person convicted of an offence. It's intended to provide recompense to a victim for loss that they suffered as a result of the offender's conduct. Usually, it's for offences that relate to property, so you know, damage, stealing, they get their thing back. Well, they get the money for it. In restorative justice, which is dealing with offences through mediation, um, restitution is often used in a way of pacifying the victim's uh, sense of offence or hurt. Basically, to try to remove that idea of a debt that the offender owes to the victim. Though, of course, in such a context, the other two elements of love and compassion are not usually part of, the, part of the equation. Though, in a good process, compassion can be. But I think it's very rare that a victim would hold their offender in love. Well, that's the idea, kind of, that Paul is getting at here. Except, instead of the offender paying, Paul is taking it on himself. First, he says to Philemon, accept Onesimus as though he is me and allow me to pay for any loss or damage that he has caused you. Charge it to my account, he says. What an incredible turn of events this must have been for the people gathered in, at this house church as the, as the letter was read out. As the imprisoned apostle 
offered to pay for this poor bondservant, a man with nothing to give of his own to make amends for his wrongdoing. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? In a theological context, this idea is called atonement. The removal or expiation of guilt by one perfect party, providing a propitiation, a turning away of justified wrath arising from that guilt. Jesus had, of course, done that on the cross. But more on that shortly. Now, if we look back at our passage, after Paul says, charge it to my account, he seems to have actually picked up the pen himself, saying, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. Now, I think this is significant for, for two reasons. First, it's one of a few indications in Scripture that demonstrate that Paul likely had his letters scribed for him, a regular occurrence for people in that time. And if you want a clear example of this, check out Romans 16, verse 22. Secondly, by Paul writing it with his own hand, he effectively makes, in the middle of this letter, a form of promissory note, basically a pledge, something that Philemon could rely on at law and say, Paul owes me and can be made to pay me. He could take it to the bank, as, you, as it were. But Paul doesn't even put a limit on what the amount is. He says, whatever Anesimus owes you, I will repay it. The check he draws, the promissory note, is blank. It's left for Philemon to fill out. And I think Paul's offer is made all the more incredible by Paul closing off even any suggestion that he might rely on his own claim against Philemon to kind of offset the debt. He goes on to say at verse 19, I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Despite the fact that Onesimus owes Paul his very salvation, his eternal life, or at least to the extent that Paul can be you know, given the credit for that in sharing the gospel with him. Paul does not allow this to limit the extent he is willing to go or pay for Onesimus' debt to Philemon. Of course, it's not that Paul receives no benefit from the arrangement. It's probably just not the benefit we might expect. Certainly not the benefit that someone in a restorative justice process would accept or expect. Coming full circle in his letter, Paul returns to the idea of being refreshed. And in verse 20, Paul says, Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Brother, despite what he's done, please give me the joy of seeing you both reconciled in Christ. Just as Philemon had regularly refreshed the hearts of the saints through his generous outpouring of his faith at the top end of the letter, Paul wanted to see that continued in the life of Onesimus. And as it had before, it would bring the imprisoned apostle great joy and refresh his own heart. Now, I mentioned at the start that this letter does not address everything there is to say about forgiveness. For example, we don't know very much about the context of the offence. And we know even less about how Onesimus, the offender, is actually approaching the situation. We know he was willing to return and stand before his owner at great risk to himself. And we have at least Paul's recommendation of him. But we don't know what he might have said, what he was thinking, what his remorse was like, whether he even apologised. We just don't know. But I think that is exactly what makes this letter so very helpful for us. See, in this way, we have no way of drawing a line in the sand. We have no way of determining for ourselves whether Philemon is justified or not in receiving an isthmus, at least other than in the picture we see in Christ. But what we do have is that example. The example of one who would stand in the gap to make forgiveness possible. Paul is effectively standing before Philemon 
in the place of Onesimus. Just as Jesus stood before God in the place of the apostle himself. Paul presents for us in this short letter a fundamental position from which we are to consider broken relationships within the church. When we are hurt, we are to look to the one who forgave us for the sake of love. The one who had complete compassion and could genuinely sympathize with and experienced our pain. The one who bore our stripes was punished in our place as a propitiation, as we said, as a turning away of God's own wrath to make atonement, to pay the restitution for our sin. As 1 Timothy 2, 5-6 says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Paul gives Philemon and gives us a picture of Christ. And he holds that picture up and he says, Receive Onesimus as you would receive him. And so we're left with wondering, what will Philemon's response be? Which takes me to my second point, the response. I didn't do that one. Maybe I did. You're likely all familiar with Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. In Luke 15, 11 to 32, Jesus tells the story of a younger son who asks for his inheritance before his father had died. His father gives him what he would one day receive, and the younger son goes and spends it all, ultimately hitting rock bottom. He returns to his father and seeks a job as a bondservant, as it were, seeking from that point on to be a slave, not a son to pay for his life in servitude. The father, far from taking a hard hand to his son, runs to him as he approaches, graciously embraces him as his son and celebrates his return with the family, encouraging his older, very unhappy son to join in. Do you ever read that story and kind of cringe at the unfairness of it? that a son would be so unloving to take his share of the family's wealth and then leave them all behind to live as he pleased, but seems to be able to come back into the family consequence-free. Or was it consequence-free? When you really think about it, the story is not so much about lavish, consequence-free forgiveness as though nothing wrong had happened. While forgiveness is clearly evident in the father's approach, the story is not consequence-free. The consequences are just not where we expect them to be. They're not born by the son, but by the father. The father has lost a large portion of his livelihood. He would have had to close up and sell things prematurely and still make things work. For the rest of his life. And above all, he faced the utter rejection and humiliation of his son leaving, treating him as though he was dead. But the father pays that consequence, asks his older son to bear along with him that consequence, and accepts his runaway son back into the family. See, just, uh, Christian justice is eyes wide open. It is not pretending there is nothing wrong, pretending that it's okay, that deep down we're all essentially good and we can just do our best to get along. No, Christian justice is the innocent being punished so that the guilty go free. It's the shocking reality of the gospel. 
that Jesus, the perfect example of life lived for God, who was himself one with God, would give up his own life in place of God's children who deserve to pay for their own lives in order to allow his people to return to live with him. If you are here today and do not know that freedom, the good news is that you can. God calls you to believe in this message and to repent of your life lived away from God and to return to him. Please talk to someone about that today if you'd like to. It is of eternal significance. And well, we don't get to find out exactly how Philemon responded or what he said or what he did. We do know that the letter was retained, so it was not torn up and thrown into the fire as the villain would do in the movies. So I think we get a pretty good idea that Philemon did not leave Anesimus out in the cold. More clearly, though, we do have Paul's confidence in what he knew of Philemon and how he knew he would respond. And so in verse 21, maybe it's 20, confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. Paul knew of how Philemon acted towards brothers and sisters in the faith, as we saw earlier. And when Paul asks Philemon to receive Onesimus as he would receive Paul himself, I think there is no doubt that he's drawing on the things that he was also saying to the church in Rome. In Romans 15, 1-7, now I won't read it out, but if you'd like to turn there in your Bibles, feel free. Romans chapter 15, 1-7. But at the end of that little section, he says this, Therefore, welcome or receive one another as Christ has welcomed, received you for the glory of God. See, when you look at it, in light of Romans 15, conflict gives us incredible opportunities within our church to grow in our Christ-likeness. Opportunities for bearing with each other's failings, seeking to please our neighbor for his or her good, to build one another up, even when it doesn't please us, even when our endurance and we need encouragement greatly. Conflict provides opportunities to live that out so that there might be harmonious living and unity within our family. Curiously, almost (laughs) contradictory. So that God would be glorified. So that our knowledge of the fullness of every good thing that is in us, in Philemon verse 6, will grow. Does that describe how we experience relationship at Emmaus Road? Looking closer to home, does that describe the way you receive people yourselves? This is how Philemon was being called upon to respond in love and compassion with Onesimus, knowing that Paul had covered the debt that he owed and being asked to recognize two things. The first, that Onesimus was now part of the family, and in that way, he was to receive Onesimus as though he was Paul, as we've seen. Jesus says in Luke 6, 27 and 28, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Powerful words. We read more of that this morning. Of course, while Anesimus was ultimately being presented as a repentant brother, I imagine Philemon's view was probably closer to the idea of enemy, certainly at the start, at least on the basis of verse 11. And if Philemon did take up the family idea quickly, the knowledge that a person is a fellow Christian doesn't always make our response or their reception any easier. If we think back to our debt analogy from earlier, do you ever find yourself taking a similar approach with forgiveness? 
Do we ever hold the debt over a person seeking to control a situation by withholding forgiveness? We might do this by holding ourselves up on a higher level, for, for example. Proudly waiting until the other person sees our point of view and comes back to us with the right approach, the right attitude, the right answer before we consider forgiveness. Or maybe it might come from a, a, a place of fear. We may get a feeling that we are binding ourselves somehow. We're, we're tying ourselves up by our decision to forgive while the offender gets to be freed. We might even rightly sometimes think, I've not done anything wrong. It's all on them. And so we convince ourselves that forgiveness will just tell them they are right, and so we hold on to it. These are real and difficult feelings. Don't get me wrong. Best processed safely with a trusted friend or discipler in light of the gospel. But our response to our forgiveness in Christ is most simply spelled out in James and 1 Peter as humble yourself so that he may exalt you. Let Jesus do the work. Trust him. Humble yourself. Christ has freed us from the bondage of sin. This freedom can ensure that we do not burden ourselves with the wrongs committed against us. So even with someone who is unrepentant, Jesus calls us to forgive them before God as a demonstration to him and to ourselves, vertically as it were, that we recognize his forgiveness of us. Like Mark 11.25 says. So that even if we're not able to fully forgive them in the sort of horizontal sense between each other, through what would come if their remorse and, and seeking of reconciliation was obvious, we can still submit the situation to God. Know that He is the one who will ultimately judge justly, as we see in 1 Peter 2.23. And we can begin to be freed of the burden. Ken Sandy helpfully describes unforgiveness in his book, The Peacemaker, as the poison that we drink, hoping that someone else will die. Unforgiveness is the poison that we drink, hoping that someone else will die. Sounds a bit like our example in Danielle at the beginning of our story this morning. And I think Paul's observation at verse 16 is a helpful, helpful reminder for us too. I mean, Christian relationships are now in the flesh. But we have an eternal future perspective in the Lord too. We're going to be spending eternity together. Why would we hold off forgiveness to a sister or a brother in light of eternity? In fact... Jesus sounds a clear warning about unforgiveness in the Lord's Prayer, recorded in Matthew 6, 9 to 15, where we're taught to pray, one of the lines, forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Here's the concept. But Jesus goes on to say, for if you forgive others their trespasses, that idea of overstepping the mark, intruding into areas they shouldn't be. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. If unforgiveness is an issue for us, we must take heed of this warning and consider whether it highlights in us an underlying flakiness in our profession. Of course, if you are concerned by that, please don't keep that to yourself. Let's have a chat about it. But we can't talk much about all of these little issues as we go. There's too many of them. <laughs> At the end of the day, Luke 17.3 is clear. If our brother or sister repents, then we are to forgive them. And this is where Philemon is at. But Paul uses more 
than just family forgiveness, or sorry, just family to bring this home. Paul asks Philemon to receive Onesimus as he would receive Paul himself. So I want you to imagine for a second your relationship with your best friend, whoever that is. Now, they've just run into your car as they were leaving your house. How do you respond to them? Now, think of the last time someone in the church did something that hurt you or even annoyed you. Do you respond in the same way? Let me say again, this is not a catch-all illustration of forgiveness in all types of circumstances. There is much to say on the idea of forgiveness and many books to read on the topic. The whole Bible, as we've said, centers on the idea of forgiveness. It's a really great place to start. But our letter helpfully presents a fundamental position that forgiveness through Christ results in an outworking of forgiveness to others. But I do want to say, this interaction between these brothers, um, there are a couple of things to notice. First, there's no anticipation by Paul that the once disloyal slave needed to be on some kind of probationary period. There's no sort of suggestion that Onesimus should give him some time to prove his worth Sorry, Philemon should give Onesimus some time to prove his worth, and before Philemon receives him fully into the family, you know, like gives him some small task. And we don't know that, but what we do know is Paul said, "Receive him as you would receive me." I think it's unlikely that Philemon would say, "Okay, Paul, uh, you know, just do a, just do a couple of little things here. We just want to make sure you you know you're going to be part of the family." That's not the image that Paul gives Philemon. But Paul has doubtless seen enough of Onesimus' life in their time together before sending him back that he can confirm a genuine profession of faith and a desire to live for Christ. Paul can vouchsafe, as it were, to Philemon the safety of welcoming Onesimus right back into life as a brother, into Philemon's family, and even entrusting himself into Onesimus' care. So there is something else to that. And so I think there is a necessary distinction between this situation and perhaps a situation where we are wronged by an unbeliever, for example. In such a case, we, we, we of course, ought to forgive and to love. That's, that point is clear. Remembering that Christ loved us before we loved him, in Romans 5, verse 8. But it may be, in the circumstances, unwise to quickly entrust ourselves all the way into their care and confidence until we've seen the kind of heart change that would make such a relationship right, safe, or healthy for either party. And obviously, in abusive relationships, that's the kind of thing we want to be looking to. So talk to someone if that's, that's the kind of thing that's coming to mind, please. But what of forgiveness without friendship within the Christian community or family? It is, of course, true that some offences will be so deep that hurt and memory of the incident will last a long time, perhaps even a lifetime. But even with the deepest hurt, and I say this as gently as I can without knowing your context, the Bible remains clear that it must not hinder the offering of forgiveness, nor should it be allowed or permitted within ourselves to lead to bitterness. There is an ultra-fine line between recognizing hurt that persists after forgiveness and that hurt turning into bitterness. And it is something we should guard against fiercely. Again, I can't say as much as I'd love to about this. But what I will do is I'll share a, a really helpful Ask Pastor John on this topic in our email in the coming weeks. So if that's something you want to talk about, um, stay tuned for that or ask me for it. But I would be so bold to say that even if a Christian relationship has been impacted by hurt so much that you can no longer see a friendship exists in that time, genuine forgiveness 
born out of Christ's unconditional forgiveness to us, will mean that even then, we will do all that we can to rebuild the relationship from the ground up. Consider them anew, believer to church. You don't know them yet, but you will invite them in to get to know them over time. Jesus says clearly, Go and be reconciled. We see that in Matthew 5, 24. And I think Paul's words again in verse 16 are helpful here as well. Paul tells Philemon to no longer view Onesimus as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother or sister. Now, there's a helpful idea in Christian conciliation and counseling that describes how genuine forgiveness through Christ means you make four no longer promises to the other person about how you will deal with them in light of your forgiveness, particularly applying things like the replacement principle and other things. Now, I don't have time to address them at all today, but if you want help in this area, I can recommend reading through two um, helpful resources. The Peacemaker, as I mentioned earlier, by Ken Sandy, is a very practical book, broken down into stages with really helpful application questions to help you really think about what's going on and, and where you're at in a conflict. And another one that I've found really helpful is Relationships, A Mess Worth Making by Timothy Lane and Paul Tripp. Well, let's have a chat. I'm happy to do that too. But let me quote from Tripp's book when he says this. When we reject the opportunity to forgive or ask for forgiveness, the relationship suffers. When we choose to practice true forgiveness... The relationship is not just brought back to where it was before the offense. It actually moves further down the road to maturity. What an incredible reality of the opportunities that Christ creates in conflict. When genuine, true forgiveness is practiced. Now, as we touched on earlier from verse 20 of our passage, joy results from forgiveness in Christ, and hearts are refreshed. And if that joy was not immediate for Philemon, it certainly would have been for Onesimus, as his wrongs were forgiven, and he was given a clean slate with Philemon, his brother. And who knows, maybe he was even freed. It's hard to notice in our English translations, but there is a clever wordplay by Paul in verse 17. He uses the Greek root word that Onesimus' own name was drawn from to describe the benefit that Philemon might provide him. We don't know from the text, but maybe Philemon would do even more than Paul had said, as Paul encourages him to, and go all the way and give Onesimus a chance to return himself to assist Paul as the beloved co-worker that he'd become to him already. Well, I think we've gleaned about all we can about how Philemon might have responded to Paul and briefly considered how we might do likewise. But I want us to quickly consider one final thing briefly, and that is what it might look like to stand in Paul's shoes, or perhaps his dusty sandals, as we walk as a family alongside each other. And so we come to my third and final point, the expectation. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons or heirs of God. Matthew 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers. Are we peacemakers? Paul had seen the God opportunity that presented when the runaway Onesimus was brought across his path. A chance for him to speak into the lives of these brothers. And we have that same opportunity as we rub shoulders together in our family and with the wider Christian community. Paul had a deep and abiding personal confidence in who Christ was, in what he had done on the cross, and in what he had promised to do in the lives of his people. This allowed him to confidently approach Philemon and disciple him, guide him, support him in looking to Christ, in holding up the picture of Christ to him, and we can only imagine that he did the same with Onesimus 
before sending him back to Colossae. And so we read in verses 21 to 22 of Philemon, Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. And we don't know whether Paul's and Philemon's hope was fulfilled in this. Did Paul ever get to go and stay in that guest room? Don't know. But what I think is clear to us from Paul's example is that when the gospel is the foundation of the family, the members of that family can speak frankly and honestly to each other, speaking the truth in love, as we've seen in recent sermons, in three ways. First, without fear. Paul is confident. Paul is not concerned that his request or his loving and godly counsel would ruin his relationship with Philemon. So much so that he asked Philemon to prepare a guest room for him as he was hoping to be graciously given to him. Trusting God and hoping in the power of prayer from his cell, looking forward to catching up with his dear friend. Is your confidence in Christ something that you draw on to be a peacemaker in the lives of your brothers and sisters? Does it empower you with confidence to have robust conversations with each other, knowing that your relationship will survive that conversation? Let's make sure that we can. Let's make our relationships so that we can have those conversations. The other point I think is interesting is it appears to be without embarrassment. Paul was not shy to winsomely speak the truth in love. Take verse 20 and he's bold to say nothing of what you owe me, comment. We need to be able to rely on our own relationships with each other, both to be able to come alongside to encourage each other, as described in sort of 1 Timothy 5, verse 1, we looked at, I think, last week or the week before. Regardless of age, encouraging one another, but dealing appropriately with each other in light of our ages. And two, to be open to allowing someone to come alongside with godly instruction and discipleship, willing to be guided, putting into action the family relationships that we saw in Titus 2 in our first week in Philemon. Paul and Philemon demonstrate to us an open and loving relationship where they know that they can speak honestly to each other in love and for love's sake. And consistent with God's word, they know they will be received and they have confidence that they will continue to be loved. So, as disciples, as Paul, do we hold our friendships and our comfort as something that is more important than the restoration of a relationship between brothers and sisters in the family? Are we more likely to say, oh, maybe I'll just stay out of this one and let them handle it? I wouldn't want to intrude. Or are we ready to say gently between each other, hey, I noticed that things seemed a bit tense between you and someone else. Can we talk it through? Can we pray together about it? Let's go with option B. Let's make that a practice that we do. And what about as Philemon? How do you respond when someone seeks to give you that counsel about conflict that you're in? Do you just kind of expect them to, as your friend, take your side? Do you say, join my army, we, you know, let's get this other person, they've wronged me. Is that our expectation of our friends within the church, our family? Do we get offended when they gently suggest that forgiveness is a better way than bitterness? Or if they gently help us to get the log out of our own eye, even if it is quite painful? Do you demand that people do not speak to you about one thing or another because it is just too painful? Or are you willing to allow your brothers and sisters to hold Christ up to you, to point you to the gospel, 
and to give you hope of a better way in Christ. Would you be opening the guest room to a brother or sister who has challenged you to forgive someone who has betrayed your trust? Well, these things are hard. And so Paul ends the only place he can and says we, are could do, we can only do this in the strength of the Holy Spirit. He closes with this blessing. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Paul knew that Philemon could not achieve what was being asked of him on his own. The saying is true that hurting people hurt people. He saw that himself in his own relationships with Mark, who's listed as one of the, one of the family in this letter. Do some research in Acts around Mark. They have some, you know, he has some barnies with people about him, no pun intended. Paul had obviously come to forgive him by the time of this book, though. And as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, we'd come to discover a similar devastating thing in Demas. And Paul knew that the only power, the only power was, that, uh, was in Christ to make forgiveness possible. So family, as we opened our study in Philemon with an encouragement to pray, let me close with the same encouragement. Be thankful to God for each other's faith and pray for each other as we see at the beginning of Philemon. And as Philippians, Paul exhorts the church in Philippi 4, 4-7, particularly in the middle there, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And there's the result. Peace. Know that it is God's work. He will accomplish it. We see that in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 to 20, that we have a mission to share the ministry of reconciliation. One that he wants us to share with the world around us and that the world will see in us as we live lives impacted and equipped and empowered by that reconciliation. So take an open hand to how you can help the restoration of relationships between members of the family of God. Recall Paul's open-ended promissory note Whatever the time, whatever the cost, whatever the energy, do this for each other. It is worth it. Now we started with a story of a broken relationship between a mother and daughter, separated by death with unforgiveness reigning. Thankfully, that's not the only story I read. I also came across a blog by a Christian lady who lived, well, a very similar experience, really, to that of the first daughter. Her name was Sarah. But there was one vital difference between Danielle and Sarah. Christ. The second daughter had a love for her saviour. The recognition of what Christ had done in her own life allowed her to become, uh, sorry, her to come at the conflict, eventually, with her mum from a different perspective. And so, after yet another terse conversation with her mother, Sarah determined to hand it over in prayer to God. And in the days that followed, this is what she recalls. The Lord eventually responded to my desperation, to my pleas for wisdom and direction. He spoke gently to my heart. How have I loved you, Sarah? I knew the answer to that question. God loves me, not because of my own merit, but because of the sacrifice of his son, Jesus, on the cross. God loves me because of who he is. In that moment, I was able to figuratively look into my heavenly father's eyes and see his unconditional love for me. There was no pain there, no brokenness, no dissatisfaction, just love. How could God look upon me with such love and acceptance when I have failed him so utterly and completely? Then it struck me. He could look at me that way because the slate had been wiped clean. 
He had truly forgiven me all of my shortcomings and chosen to love me unconditionally in spite of them all. If I could learn to love my mom in the same way, maybe in time, that love could erase the pain in her eyes. A clean slate. An unconditional love. These gifts are not mine to offer, but I know the one who is the, pa- who is the giver of all good gifts. And I will ask him each morning for the strength to see my mum through his eyes, to love my mum with his love. Sarah, the author of this blog, would later write that in the three months since I penned these words, my relationship with my mum has been completely transformed. My choice to clean the slate and love unconditionally has released me from decades of dissatisfaction and opened up the floodgates of blessing in my life. And if you read the blog, it's a sentiment shared by her mother too. And so began the restoration, not without its bumps, the consequences of broken, fragile eggs, as Sarah would describe them, and the mess on the floor that they create, but a rebirth of a relationship of love, peace, and forgiveness in place of frustration and sadness was born. Brothers and sisters, may we have this experience in our family, sharing and receiving unconditional understanding, acceptance and love, all the things that Danielle was looking to from her mum at the beginning. May we find them in each other, flowing from Christ's deep and life-giving forgiveness in Jesus' name and for his sake. Let's pray. Father, what a gift. Undeserved, unmerited by us. A gift of grace, an act of great mercy. Father, we are thankful that you offer your Son in our place. And God, as we go out from here, as we gather together still, May we be reminded of that regularly. God, would you equip us through your word and through the power of your Holy Spirit to live this out. Guard us from bitterness. Guard us from unforgiveness. And we pray that people would look on and see, and we would look back and see how you have carried us, how you have walked with us, how you have equipped us to do things that we may not have even imagined was possible. And we pray that this would be to your glory, God. And let me finish with Ephesians uh, chapter 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.